There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. So what is the point of the No Restraint Podcast? You know, in the beginning, I thought it would give me an opportunity to do long form, which I love, instead of having to stop for breaks and stop for commercials and things of that nature. And really, most people use these podcasts as a venue where they can say things, including expletives. So I listened back to a couple of my No Restraint podcasts, and there are a bunch of them, over 100. And what I discovered was, I don't curse on them. I really don't feel the need to use expletives to make my point. And as a matter of fact, I kind of know my audience and they don't require expletives to understand passion. So I don't know why I do a podcast, except that I always have a lot to say and never enough time to say it. And I also read some fascinating articles that I'm not sure everybody gets a chance to read and I want to talk about them with you. I also know that you're in the same position I am these days. There's so much news coming at us and so much commentary coming at us that at times we just want to turn everything off. Last week I had to do that for a while. I simply couldn't look at any more news stories, couldn't read them, couldn't uh, watch them on television or could not listen to them on the radio, which for me is kind of like cutting your nose off to spite your face, but I just had to put it down because all of the news was swimming together and none of it seemed to be resolvable, if that's a word. So I kind of let it go for a while. But one of the stories that just wouldn't go away was the Chinese spy balloon. And it brought a lot of emotion up for me. I have a friend who lives in Bozeman, Montana, and I wanted to call her in the worst way, but I just kept delaying, couldn't do it, uh, something came up. I f never remember what the time change is, you know, the usual excuses. And then I read a piece on Barry Weiss's Free Press, which is her Substack uh, website now. And it was by somebody named Walter Kern, who lives in Montana. I don't know Walter, but Walter pretty much uh, sums up the thoughts that were going through my head when I realized that I do know people who live in Montana more than just my friend Linda. I know Jay. I know a bunch of people who live there, and they're pretty ornery people. So I thought, well, let's see. What did Walter Kern have to say about this? He said, last week when Montanans looked up at the sky, the fabled big sky that gives the state its nickname and remains clear and blue and well worth gazing at, everybody saw something odd. Some people reported the distant silver sphere to the authorities. It's kind of a tradition in a state that was pacified by vigilantes back in the days of the frontier mining camps to keep an eye peeled for signs of brewing trouble. 
It's lucky that this tradition lingers because the glinting orb, as we all now know, was an enormous Chinese spy balloon hanging above the missile silos and bases that are spread out across the northern plains and help form our nation's nuclear deterrent. We weren't supposed to notice the floating intruder. According to Bloomberg, the federal government was already aware of the balloon and had been for several days, but they wished to keep the matter on the down low so as not to disrupt a coming meeting between Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and high Chinese officials. Too bad for the bigwigs. They miscalculated, perhaps because they dwell in cities where people tend to stare into their phones rather than idly admiring the heavens, spotting anomalous aircraft now and then. Once eagle-eyed Montanans had seen the balloon and Americans came to discover that the country's military elite was allowing a giant bag of gas hooked to a payload of surveillance gear to bob along unmolested above our nukes and, as it just happened, above Walter Kern's house, a minor national panic followed. Phone lit up with texts from distant friends, my Twitter feed with comments and questions that ranged from the serious to the tensely humorous. Were my fellow Montanans planning to take up arms against this violator of our airspace? Weren't we famously cranky and given to self-defense? And what about Montana's Maimstrom Air Force Base, which, according to the Pentagon, maintains some 150 intercontinental ballistic missile silos? As the balloon peered down upon my state, its intentions uncertain and its presence a bit humiliating, the stereotypes about Montana flowed. Much mention was made of the TV show Yellowstone, which lately has spun off a couple of other shows set deep in the state's romantic, roaring past. In all of them, Montanans are portrayed as quick to anger, intensely self-sufficient, instinctively hostile to rich and fancy outsiders, in other words, not the sort of people to sink back into their Instagram accounts when confronted with giant airborne trespassers. I'll admit it, the comments and the balloon itself hovering so smugly out of range of the dusty hunting rifle I own put me in a touchy mood. For though I was proud we'd spotted the damn thing and raised an alarm that sounded across the continent, neighboring Canada hadn't made a peep during the craft's stealthy transit through its time zones, I just about had it with all the public attention recently paid to Montana. Just a few weeks back, I sat down with my morning coffee, opened up the paper, and learned that I now live in a quasi-fascist state. It said so in the paper. The paper wasn't a local publication, but one from a couple of thousand miles away, the New York Times, whose glossy Sunday magazine included a lengthy illustrated feature with a five-alarm headline, how Montana took a hard right turn towards Christian nationalism. To illustrate the state's alleged swerve toward neo-fascist theocratic rule, a dire development I'd somehow missed, the story included a scary gothic photo, heavily filtered to bring out its dark tones of a ghostly white cross on a bare hillside reflected in a passing rearview mirror. It also included, of course, a Yellowstone reference and Kevin Costner's name right up top where the search engines would see them. Since moving to small town Montana from New York City over 30 years ago, I've lived through at least a couple of cycles of ominous national coverage of my state. Without going into the details, let me assure you that this article was bunk, as exaggerated as the photo. 
But fiction is fact where Montana is concerned, particularly on the country's coasts, where tales are told about the country's interior that the country's interior lacks the clout to counter, much as our guns lack the range to bring down aircraft. Despite our legendary swagger, Montanans are largely helpless against the country's more powerful forces. The missiles on our prairies aren't missiles we asked for, just missiles that formidable others wish to plant here. They make us a target, but we don't control them. Do I sound defensive? Perhaps I am, said Walter Kern. I live in a state with zero big league sports teams, not a single Fortune 500 corporation, and no national media influence to speak of, unless you count made-up shows about fake ranchers slugging it out in scripted brawls. I'm one of about a million residents, all of whom, no matter their circumstances, are up against the myth-making machines of cities and states of imperial wealth and numbers, and imperial attitudes, dare I say, which emerge in their basic perennial story about us. Those folks from the steppes and mountains are growing restless, including the ones who've just moved there to go skiing, who appear to be worse than the ones already living there, who we've always found unsettling enough. When the spy balloon floated across America, the rest of the country got a taste, perhaps, of Montana's stoic colonial impotence. For days we could point, but we weren't allowed to shoot. Great power diplomacy prevented it. Americans may think we're tough, as Montanans may think they're tough, but it seems that we're tough in the way that actors in Westerns are, only with the permission of the director, only symbolically. Down went the balloon on Saturday to much applause, but the spectacle was pure cinema by then, like a fistfight on Yellowstone that draws fake blood. But at least we proud Montanans kept our honor. We spied the lurking villain, we called the sheriff, we warned our neighbors, we did what we could do. I suspect we'll continue in this role, watchful vigilantes of the skies. There's trouble afoot, you can feel it everywhere, particularly if you dwell near nuclear missiles, particularly if you live where there's no cover and someone has to stand lookout on the hill. I thought it was a brilliant piece by Walter Kern, and it said so many of the things that I really wanted to say, especially when it comes to the fact that we are so helpless when these things happen. We're waiting for an administration that can barely rouse itself Look, we have a president who can barely walk and a president who can barely construct a sentence and a vice president who's a giddy, neurotic woman who simply cannot get her act together. Here we are more than two years into this administration and she's as phony and laughable as she was at the beginning. And that's who's controlling what happens in our skies, who's controlling our military, and worse yet, who's controlling our economy. I wanted to talk also about the hubbub last week about removing Ilhan Omar, the representative from Minnesota, from the Foreign Affairs Committee. I think it was very late in coming. But for reasons even more fundamental than the newspaper columns will give you, and even that were uh, stated in the resolution removing her from the panel. But for a long time, people like Ben Weingarten, people like Ben Shapiro, people like me have been trying to tell you that the idea that we had someone sitting on that committee 
who literally doesn't like the country and makes no bones about saying that, really was kind of uncomfortable for most of us. The reality is Representative Omar should have never been allowed to serve on the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the first place. She has an anti-Western worldview that pervades the rhetoric that she is famous for and makes her a uniquely repugnant figure. And now, of course, we know her House colleagues agree with us. By appointing her to that post in the first place, Democrats knowingly and recklessly endangered U.S. national security, which is a crucial but overlooked point in this whole Ilhan Omar saga. That is because while the committee touches on nearly every sensitive issue vital to U.S. national security and foreign policy, an extensive investigation into Representative Omar's background suggests she would have never been able to pass a basic background check for any national security position, let alone one at the level required of a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I know that Ben Weingarten had written about such a thing in his 2020 book. It was a lengthy expose called American Ingrate about Representative Omar. He detailed the extensive links and or coordination, uh, almost in Bob Mueller's special counsel parlance, between Representative Omar and Islamist terror-filled, terror-tied individuals, often affiliated with organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, CARE, MAS, and the USCMO, and officials foreign and domestic, revealing a pretty open and shut case of collusion with American adversaries and or corrupt regimes led by Turkey and her native Somalia. He also proved often overwhelming evidence suggesting that Representative Omar engaged in marriage, immigration, student loan, and tax fraud, as well as perjury. And this is serious business. One wonders still to this day, was Representative Omar married to her own brother for immigration deceit? And that's all before one touches on the mere ethical concerns that are raised by conduct like Representative Omar's paying out hundreds of thousands of dollars to a political consultant alleged to have been involved in an affair with her, a consultant, incidentally, who she would ultimately wed, as well as more petty violations, such as her receiving honoraria against the rules of the Minnesota House or her unlawful use of campaign funds for travel when she was a state legislator. Thus, as I came to learn, Somali-American sources in Omar's congressional district claimed they faced threats to their life and limb from Omar-tied goons for speaking out about her, and in certain cases would only meet in public locations where there was visible security for their safety that only raised further alarm bells about the congresswoman, as did her prevarications and the contradictory accounts she presented when facing scrutiny along with her persistent cry-bullying, including of Ben Weingarten and continuing, and continuing until this very day in calling anyone who dares to confront her with legitimate questions about her words and actions bigots. Put it all together, and you have a figure whose affiliations and conduct were uniquely compromising, so much so that it should be unconscionable to put that person in any position in the U.S. government, 
let alone one touching on pressing matters of national security. Yet by dint of being elected, Representative Omar never had to pass a background check to assume such a position. So when Democrats tapped her for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, they imperiled us all. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The U.S. House, therefore, is no doubt a better institution today with Representative Omar booted from the Foreign Affairs Committee. That the House condemned Representative Omar by name and condemned her vile rhetoric specifically rectifies a great wrong that was done four years ago by House Democrats, who in March of 2019 circled the wagons for Representative Omar in watering down a resolution that originally would have done the same, but instead, under pressure from progressives, broadly condemned anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim, and anti-minority bigotry. And it would have been political malpractice for Republicans not to strip Representative Omar, as well as her colleagues, Representative Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, from their committee assignments, given the standard to which Democrats have held Republicans. Concerns about a tit-for-tat escalation, those went out the window. The second Democrats booted Republicans from committees. Indeed, failing to respond in kind would have signaled weakness, inviting further aggression and more brazen political assaults. While House Republicans may have stripped deserving Democrats of their committee assignments, they have done little, if anything, to deter behavior, such as the Democrats' creation of kangaroo court committees in violation of House rules that issue frivolous subpoenas aimed at harassing Republican colleagues, such as the January 6th Select Committee. Nevertheless, the issues that were detailed in American Ingrate about Representative Omar remain and they should be addressed. Law enforcement has seemed unwilling to pursue an investigation into the Congresswoman on the merits, while it simultaneously undertakes all manner of politically charged investigations into other officials, including an ex-president. Voters have failed to punish Representative Omar, despite her background and record, by removing her from office altogether. Failing that, House Republicans have done perhaps the next best thing. And again, I listened to the arguments that were being debated over removing her, and all I could say was, you got to be kidding me. I also saw a piece this morning about these black leaders in Miami who had to publicly apologize to our governor, Ron DeSantis, after one of their members called him a racist. At Wednesday's Miami-Dade Black Affairs Advisory Board meeting, one member, Miami lawyer Stephen Hunter Johnson, said, our governor is racist. The statement drew no objection at the time. After the statement, the board members unanimously voted to draft a letter to DeSantis, objecting to the governor's position on the advanced placement course. However, that letter included no explicit accusation of racism. 
Now, however, the board seems to have somewhat changed its tune. Board Chair Pierre Rutledge issued a statement with nine on behalf of the board apologizing to DeSantis for the comment. We take it to heart when someone uses the term racist. Words matter. And so as chair, I must start by saying that we want to pull that back. There's nothing wrong with saying we're sorry. That's not what we intended to say or be depicted by anyone. And that's not the feeling of this board. The accusation came following DeSantis's much-publicized opposition to the College Board's AP African-American Studies course due to political bias in its curriculum. When accused of whitewashing history, notice they used the term whitewashing, DeSantis pointed to specifics, according to the New York Times. Part of the curriculum included something called queer theory, now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda. The College Board purged the names of many black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory, the queer experience, and black feminism. It ushered out some politically fraught topics, like Black Lives Matter, from the formal curriculum, according to the New York Times. Topics like Black Lives Matter and reparations debates in America are included as illustrative sample project topics instead of as a one-sided curriculum. The adjustments also add a segment on black conservatism, which was not included in the initial curriculum. However, David Coleman, head of the College Board, maintained to the New York Times that DeSantis's rejection of the original course had no impact on the adjustments. Oh, sure. However, at the College Board, we can't look to statements of political leaders, he said. Instead, he claimed the changes were based on the input of professors and longstanding advanced placement principles. The course is designed to be taught over 28 weeks and includes broad topics such as early African kingdoms and city-states, the slave trade, the civil rights movement, and black power and black pride. Despite the conciliation of the board, other black leaders in Florida are not so understanding. Some leaders, in conjunction with the Democrats, have resolved to defend the course, presumably in its original form, and will rally on February 16th at the state capitol in Tallahassee. They say black history matters, black history is not inferior, and black history does not lack educational values. I think that's actually what our governor was trying to say. But of course, don't confuse the left with facts. It confuses them very much. And finally, in this No Restraint podcast, I feel that I really have to address something about the industry that I work in. As you all know, I am no fan of the media. I'm not a fan of the so-called mainstream or lamestream or whatever, traditional sources of information media. I'm not a fan because they have forced us to swallow a whole lot of lies. And whenever we raise the specter of wanting to counter those lies, there's immediately some name-calling that goes on. For years in talk radio, just the fact that I'm against illegal immigration had me branded by publications and by shows on television as some kind of crazy anti-Hispanic. 
which is laughable and always has been, since, of course, I am Hispanic, and I don't hate myself, don't hate my mother, didn't hate my mother, don't hate any of my Hispanic relatives, but in fact, do not like the idea that the southern border is porous and that people can stream across it. And of course, these days, it's not even Hispanics predominantly coming across that southern border. We have people coming from all over the world. I get it. America's a great country still, in spite of all of our faults. And there's a reason that people want to come here, even if we as Americans don't relish the freedoms that we are afforded. But I'm not anti-anything. I'm not a bigot. I'm not uh, a person who spends a lot of time worrying about what other people are doing. I'm very much a libertarian when it comes to people's personal lives. I just don't want them forcing ideas about sex on children. If that makes me a bigot, well then maybe I need to reevaluate the Webster Dictionary description of what a bigot is. Because it doesn't say that anyone who counters the prevailing attitudes is a bigot. What it says is if I act out on anything which would cause harm to another human being based on their appearance, based on their race, based on their religion, or even based on their ideas, that might qualify as bigotry. But commenting on the insanity that I see on the left, that is not bigotry commenting on the bizarre nature of uh, the way African-Americans want to be paid reparations by people who never owned slaves and they themselves were never slaves, I'm allowed to talk about those things. It does not make me a bigot. I'm allowed to talk about how Antifa and Black Lives Matter burned down cities and killed people and there were no arrests originally and even after there were arrests, they ended up arresting a lot of people who were not guilty of anything, like Kyle Rittenhouse. Defending yourself is still tolerated in this country. At least that's what Rittenhouse's case finally proved. But when I look back at how the mainstream media covered the Catholic schoolboys that were in Washington, D.C. and happened to have MAGA hats on, and they immediately assumed that these were horrible people and racist and bigots and yelling in the face of a, a Native American protester when none of that was true. And yet they have never really confessed that they do it all the time. So the state of my industry is awful. The kind of nonsense that goes on to television programs, I don't watch television. Most people know I'm not a big fan of television. Once upon a time, I tolerated it more than I do today. But the reason I don't watch it is because I'm living my life. I'll read to gain information, but I cannot sit in front of a television set and watch other people live their lives. A good historical document every now and then might work for me. A, you know, a rally where I get to hear some speakers that I enjoy hearing, that might work for me. A couple of commentary shows like Mark Levin and Tucker Carlson, they might work for me. But for the most part, I have learned that the more time I waste my time sitting in front of the boob tube or whatever you want to call it, the less time I have to actually be productive and actually live my life. And to be honest, 
living my life is the priority as I enter into this final stage of my life. I'm too old to have dreams. I've got to start making my dreams my reality. There's no longer a vast future awaiting me. That awaits my children and my grandchildren. I'm reading a book by Kirk Douglas. He wrote it when he was 90 years old. And it reminds me that we need to live our lives because the day will come when you're sitting there and you're looking back at all the memories you've made and all of the arguments you've had and all of the debates you've been involved in and all of the elections you voted in. And the only thing you're going to want to talk about or think about are the people that you loved and the people who loved you. I don't want to forget that lesson from Kirk Douglas's biography or his final book. I don't want to forget that lesson because I'm there. I may not be 90, but I know that's approaching. And 20 is so far in the rearview mirror that it might as well just be a memory. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to remember that I really need to thank you. Thank you for listening to the No Restraint Podcast. Thank you for your comments. And I do appreciate, I read all the emails, and I do appreciate even the constructive criticism that comes my way. But more importantly, let me know how you think, what you think, and when you think I should cover a story that you may not have heard my take on. That's right. You can always email me at joyceradio at gmail.com. And that way, I'll be able to fine-tune this No Restraint podcast, which I assure you takes a lot of time to think about and produce, but more importantly, is for you. I know what I think. You want to know what I think. And therefore, I am so appreciative that you do. And I don't want to ever forget that the only reason I have this podcast or I'm able to do a radio program, which I've been doing for almost 33 years, you're the only reason that happens. So if I forgot to thank you over and over again, it's not because I don't believe it. Charge it to my head and not my heart. I appreciate every last one of you. See you on the next No Restraint Podcast. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.